0: Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's very nice to see you here. And um, can I f- start by asking whether there's anybody here who was at the first of these three platforms yesterday? Oh, there are some. Oh, well done. That's that's impressive commitment. Well, you will not need me to explain then, but some others might, that um, this... Uh, Event this afternoon is the second of three platforms that the National is um, presenting under what you what you might call a general heading of Shakespeare and so yesterday we had Shakespeare and old age Uh, this evening there will be a third one which is Shakespeare and family but this afternoon we are here to talk about Shakespeare and migration which you might think is a pretty big subject and it is um, but um, there is a great deal to say about it, and I am extremely fortunate in having with me two people who have a great deal to say about it, both in respect of Shakespeare, because the person on my left, extreme left, is, of course, Lenny Henry, Sir Lenny Henry, who um, has played Shakespeare on this stage. I think it was this stage, wasn't it? Am I forgotten? Just Olivier.
1: Um, Yeah. It was yeah. A stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was.
0: Yeah, we, we, we both got that right. So um, uh, Lenny played in the comedy of errors, which no doubt some of you saw. Um, and that is a play, as we will come on to discuss, which has in it um, a story about people who are out of their own country and in a bit of trouble as a result. Um, and next to Lenny on my left is, of course, somebody else who will be very familiar to you, George Adagaya. And George... Uh, who's the um John no, Mcdonald <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is George this is the other one yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is george um, and George uh, of course has had a, an enormously distinguished career in television, but has also written um a book, and probably more than a book, probably journalism that and other stuff that I haven't read, about his own experience of being a young person coming to the UK with his family and having to become. Just say again that little phrase that you used earlier. Well, I sort of, it,
2: my, my transition was from immigrant boy to English man is why I put it in the book.
0: Immigrant boy to English man. So you will see that um, we have here two people who know whereof they speak um, in so many ways because Lenny, your family came from Jamaica. Yeah.
1: My parents emigrated to Britain in the mid-50s um, and they moved to Dudley in the West Midlands. Yeah. Why? Like you do. <laughs> well, we're if... this close to Miami. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been Will Smith by now.
0: Okay. Now, before Lenny takes off on one and we, and we are, <laughs> the whole thing is lost in one of his marvellous Um, uh, performances. I'm going to get him to do a slightly different kind of performance because, hang on one sec, because what we need to remember is that this is a big week. Some of you have heard me say this already. This is a big week for Shakespeare. And those of you who uh, I assume all of you know why, because it's going to be his birthday at the end of the week and it'll be 400 years since he died. Um, And um, the newspapers and uh, the television and Every bit of communication that you can think of is absolutely full of Shakespeare at the moment, isn't it? And um, full of people's opinions about him and thoughts about him. But actually, what we probably need to do is just remind ourselves that he was a writer and that he wrote for the theatre. And Lenny is going to kick us off with a tiny little bit of the Comedy of Errors, um, which, as I say, he performed in here, to remind us who Shakespeare was.
1: He, that commends me to mine own content, commends me to the thing I cannot get. I, to the world, am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop, who, failing there to find his fellow forth, unseen, inquisitive, confounds himself. So I, to find a mother and a brother, in quest of them unhappy, lose myself.
0: Which is rather wonderful. But for those of you that don't know the play, The Comedy of Errors, um, what's being talked about there, Lenny, isn't it, is, well, the person speaking is one half of a pair of twins yes. who've been separated.
1: Yeah, separated, um, not at birth, but uh, there was a terrible storm, and one twin and his familiar, or factotum, or slave, as it were, go one way, and the other twin and his factotum, slave, whatever, go the other way. And,
0: and the other two, the, 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 the slave stroke factotum, are also twins, That's, yeah, which yeah. is so rather important. Of twins yeah.
1: And one of them goes on a w- global quest to find out where his other twin is, and where his mother is, and where his father is. And the other one basically comes to a big city. And in our imagining of it, Dominic Cook placed us in, in London. And Antipholus of Syracuse was, to all intents and purposes, a fictional country that was a bit like Nigeria, and Ephesus was London. Cosmopolitan, cool, diverse.
0: And, and you were the incomer? And I, you... was
1: the, I was the guy arriving from Nigeria with his, with his slave, looking for his mother and father, and perhaps to find his twin. And I, get this, and I arrive, and I don't know that my twin is there, but I'm mistaken for him continually, as I make my, day, ma- make my way through the day, and it's incredibly frustrating. But lovely things happen. I fall in love. I meet my, I meet my twin's wife. She practically um, straddles me g- in a g- snooker g- hall. <laughs> and um, it's all about being confused, but, but it's also all about being other. It's all about being seen as other, seen as different. And then, because I look like my brother, it's all about being mistaken for somebody else. This happened to be a bit in South Africa. I was in um, Johannesburg uh, for Comic Relief, and I was walking down the street with the filmmakers and this guy who was called Bongani, who carried a gun and was our security. And this man came up to me and talked to me for about 15 minutes. He was a bit drunk, but he, I, I realised that we had the same nose and similar colouring. And he clearly thought I was a relative because he wouldn't stop talking to me. And clearly at some point, I owed this guy some money in his imagination. <laughs> And Bargani said, we need to go, he thinks you owe him some money, we better go. Tell him I'm from England, a place called Dudley, I'm not from here. But the guy wasn't having it, he knew I was the person, I was some relative of his, and I owed him money, and it's just that thing, that's what Antipolis of Syracuse goes through throughout the whole play.
2: And and the thing that separates them, of course, Jenny, is, is they're shipwrecked. Um, and that's why they end up in, uh, being separated. And yes. that shipwreck, of course, is, is kind of so redolent of the kind of thing that migrants today are going through, literally. They're leaving the, the place of their birth, the land of their birth. They're trying to get to somewhere better, and, and they are literally uh, shipwrecked. I mean, obviously, I, I don't know what was going on in Shakespeare's mind when he was writing this, but uh, reading the play now, all the 400 years or something later, It it just seems so apposite.
0: Well, I think it is, and I I think uh, whatever was going on in Shakespeare's mind, and I certainly wouldn't presume to know, what he clearly did, was quite preoccupied with, was ideas about separation, so twins are separated not only in this play but also in Twelfth Twelfth Night, Uh, with, with with being cast away, so you get that in the Tempest. You get in Pericles. You get shipwrecks, in, and you get it in in um, indeed in Twelfth Night and in and in Comedy of Errors. And indeed, to to come to another play that you know very well, Lenny, um, there is um, the the sea and its potential for harm is a very big part of the Othello story too. Yeah. So this was a man and an imagination who who who, who, who could. Um, whatever he personally experienced, he could certainly grasp. And it's
2: worth, I mean, just the way you read it, Lenny, I mean, what was it about the, I am... um, Like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop. I mean, imagine Mm. being the migrant on your own, separated from your family, searching for someone else you know or you think you know, Mm. or who speaks the same language, who might just smile at you, who might give you something. I mean, it's so powerful, those words. And of course, we see it on our screens every day.
0: We do, and and there and there and there, that's a a big issue about separation. Uh, but what is also in there, and and certainly in the play, um, is something that I think both of you must have experienced, uh, which is coming into uh, a world where you aren't quite sure how you fit in. Yeah. There are aspects of it that are familiar, but other aspects which are really not. And you've got to move quite fast to, to catch up. So George, tell us about your experience of coming. Because you did a sort of double hop, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, so you
2: my one? family left Sri Lanka, where I was born, when I was five. We went to Ghana and West Africa and then came, came to the UK. And in both those cases, you had to reinvent yourself. You had to find a new identity. What did your parents do? Um, my father was a civil engineer. And my mother was um, looked after the home. Oh. Um, and it's this, and is at the core of this, this play. And, and I just found it interesting that here are these two twins and they've got separate identities, but we were talking earlier, weren't we, how we had a kind of identity for school and another identity for, for, for home. And I think in, in, in Lenny's case, um, that would have presumably happened on a daily basis, every time he went out the front door. You had a termly thing, though, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I had a termly thing, because I was a boarding school, but Lenny had well, to I do did it every, every day. Every
1: single day, the, the, um, the threshold of my house was the, the point where transformation would happen because in the house, everybody spoke Jamaican, patois, creole they call it, but we spoke in a Jamaican language, um, which was understandable to us and to other Jamaicans, but outside was seen as other, as foreign. You all, you're all used to it now because I saw a kid fall off his bike in Lewisham the other day, a white kid, and he said, "Ras, I want a bumble! <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, my dad used to say that when he stubbed his toe in the morning. But, um, but what's happened is there's, there's been an appropriation of these Creolisms, of these patois uh, for English life because to many... To many an extent, we've assimilated incredibly well into this society, that particular generation. But when, when my parents first came here, uh, for instance, my mom was followed down the street by young people who thought, who kept asking her where her tail was. Um, and my mom would have to point out to them that she was <laughs> from the West Indies, where people didn't have tails, actually. Um, and they, she got called names. She got, you know. And this is all about being other, all about being outside. And so, inside the house was this reassuring noise, reassuring food, reassuring smells. Outside the ho- house, when you went to school, you were in a predominantly foreign world. And when I watch, when I watch refugees on television, who are absolutely dead certain in their resolution to, to make it to somewhere where they are accepted, where they're not being shot at, where they might have the opportunity to make a new life or to make a temporary life before they go home. I, tot- I get it. I get this sense of let's have a safe haven somewhere. Let's protect our kids. These people have left home and my, my parents leaving wasn't as dramatic as this, but these guys have left home because it's a war zone and it's, they're escaping from something. Um, what my parents were escaping was severe and abject poverty. You know, in, in Jamaica, they were eating dirt, basically. My mum was a subsistence farmer, and there was no way they could survive unless a big thing happened. And the big thing was, go to the mother country right. and start and, a new life. You see, Antiphilus of Syracuse comes and
2: he's wandering around Ephesus, isn't he? Is that how you pronounce it, by the way, Ephesus? Ephesus, Ephesus. Oh, mm-hmm. And he's wandering around because it's an amazing place. And as we did, as migrants, um, my dad, the one thing he told us, when we get to England, I'll buy you all Cadbury's dairy milk. You can each have yeah. each have a bar. You we were lucky. And, <laughs> and you know, and you change your accent and so on and, and, and fit in. But you actually do give something up. I mean my mother, for example, got a job at a supermarket, back office job, but was told, I mean this is going back actually it was late as the seventies that she couldn't wear her sari, for example. So on the one hand, you're fitting in and you're doing it successfully, as as I have, as Lenny has. But but one must never mistake that. And he, those of us who do it successfully, that we have given something up. As, as my mother literally had to give up her her, her her you know her national clothing, if you like.
0: Mm. Just on that on that the subject of of um, voice. You're an uh-huh. actor, Lenny. Yes, and 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 you're a performer of of a different kind, George. I would say you you're both in the same business to some extent. Um, One of the things that children learn to do very quickly is to moderate how they speak to fit into different, you know, for the playground, for the classroom, for the family, for whatever else they're going to do. You made a profession out of your ability to chuck your voice around and make it do different things for you. Did it come from that?
1: Yeah, I think it did. As I was saying, there was a threshold in my house where here, you were like, yeah, man, let me have some rice and peas and bun and cheese and everything <laughs> and sit on and watch TV with my father and my mother. And then you cross road and went, hello, how are you doing? All right. Where we are we going? We're going to play football on the park, yeah? And then, hang on a minute, I've got to go back inside the house. And it was like a real, it was very, it's, like, it's a schizophrenic existence, being a migrant, because you have to... I know in your book you, you had a thing at school where they questioned your, your overall brownness yeah. in the shower. George was um, in the shower with some other boys at boarding school and they wondered why he didn't have a tan line. Um, and, and this I, I had women literally coming up to me on the bus when I was a kid with my mom and rubbing my skin to see if it came off. And this is, this is the, the, the thing of being a visible migrant is that if you're visibly different people We'll question that difference. I had that all the time. I know you did. And, and the thing about. people rub this, my hair for luck. <laughs> this business of fitting in. <laughs> I, wouldn't I mean, the thing dare. that used to
2: upset me most was when you fitted in, you fitted in so much that people forgot who you were. So, and you'll have had this that line, they'd, they'd say something nasty and then say, oh, but you're different. Oh, I had that. You know, oh, but you're different. Or I can remember literally at university bringing out. After a while, when I thought I knew people well enough, bring out some photos, family photos, and somebody said, "God, your, your parents, are, uh, you know, are Asian," and, and they'd forgotten because by then I'd cultivated this accent. I mean, um, <laughs> it's and your just, fault. You know, well, exactly. You know, you begin to feel, "Have I sold out? Mm. Have I made myself fit in so perfectly
1: that that actually I've, I've, I've left it all behind?" But our parents are slightly to blame for this because we are, we are that generation that we're told to assimilate, yeah. to integrate. My mom used to stand us on the, before we went out into the world, you must learn to integrate, <laughs> otherwise the people won't understand you. Integrate with the Dudley people then and learn to fit in. And, and so when you're told that continually throughout your upbringing, yeah. you, you literally go, I must make an effort to this. Yeah. So, so within a few years, I was very Dudley, very black country and very proud of it. But we always have this Jamaicanness of what we ate and how we experienced our culture. And what music we loved and what our house was we had the we had the plastic on the floor that led to the sofa we had the antimacassar that stopped the the hair on the thing we had the big gram that was made out of an entire rainforest we had the country and western records and the blue beat records why the country and western i don't know we had the food you know everything was about the west indies in the house but when you went outside it was different we ate fish and chips we ate pie and chips my mates yeah. Played, we played football all the time. But in the house, it was a very different or, thing. Or if
2: you didn't, you pretended to eat those things.
1: You pretended to eat those things.
2: I, I, you know, I used to feel embarrassed if I said... Because the only thing my mother cooked was curry. Did you? Yeah, and, and I used to feel embarrassed when I went out and say, oh, I had another chicken curry. So I used to make up things like bubble and squeak and, and, and so on. I had no idea what they were. You were messed were. up. You know?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. It was a, in Dudley, it was, it was just a, a thing of... I was always surprised by... Um, how little tea they had. Because we didn't have tea, we had dinner. So I'd go to my oh, white
0: right, tea, yeah. I'd okay. go to my
1: white friend's house and they say, Do you want some tea? Yeah, all right then. And then they said this they'd, say, they'd do like three chips and a little piece of ham and some salad and then some uh, tomato and a piece of cucumber and go and talk and it would be very nice and everything like that. And then I'd go back to my house and have dinner. <laughs> And my mum always served food that you couldn't see over the top of. <laughs> so that was, and then my mates would come to eat at my house and just go, what the hell is this?
0: <laughs> I'm thinking, as you're talking, about something that, uh, just, to, just to mention Shakespeare again in passing. You because can mention it's Shakespeare a, No, no, no. I know he's, no. In his, he's
1: part of this. He's, he's,
0: he's, he's allowed, yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> Lenny Othello... Um, is uh, yeah? Is he coming on? He isn't. He isn't behind you, but he has been a part of your life. Um, Othello, you might say, is a migrant or or an other an incomer yeah, yeah. who has completely woven himself into the fabric of that Venetian society. No, that he's he part of. it. has not
1: the soft parts that change. No, has. exactly.
0: Well, we might just hang on to that thought because I'm thinking that the other picture of otherness that Shakespeare gives us, which we haven't mentioned, but is relevant to what you discuss in your book, George, about, about second and third generation uh, migrant um, populations, um, is Shylock. Uh. Shylock is a picture, isn't he, of a man who is part of that society, but has carefully constructed a world In which only what he knows and believes goes up so his house not really like Dudley but a house within which he preserves the traditions of his community and he takes them out onto the street and he will only engage with the society that he's part of to the extent necessary Mm. and he says very clearly I, 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 I'll, I'll do business with you, but I won't eat with you, I won't drink with you, I won't pray with you. Mm. And I wondered, from the point of view of either of you, about this now really very sensitive issue about when a migrant uh, stops being a migrant and becomes part of the society because there are children and subsequent generations. The... the, the the very delicate balance to be struck between integration and assimilation. I mean,
2: the curious thing... I'll well, let George take this one. Yeah, it's <laughs> I mean,
0: because he's written about it. So well, good, the yeah.
2: curious thing, and I'm not sure if it's still the case, but the curious thing seems to be <clears throat> that first-generation migrants were more integrated than second and third. So particularly if... Uh, I did some research obviously in Bradford and Tower Hamlets. If you look at the... the, the um Mirpuri communities the silheti communities um actually they they they're more separate now than their parents were because okay. as as Lenny was saying ours was you know you were told you had to fit in whereas now and and I mean people will argue about this my feeling was that multiculturalism this wasn't ever a policy it was a sort of ethos a philosophy had kind of the whole purpose of it was to make difference acceptable, yes. but in a way it went on to kind of encourage it. So I think, I mean, there, there, there are parts of Britain now where you can go, and, and I think where people don't feel particularly British, and I, I, this I don't know, but I, I'm asking it as a question and maybe you'll have an answer out there, is that then, does that take us to the next step, which is what we're seeing now, where people actually feel so alienated that they go off and do some pretty terrible things after all the people, you know, if you think of um, the, the, the underground bombings, yeah, I mean, these were people who played cricket, et cetera, et cetera, you know, went to the park, as, as you were saying. So, I mean, there's less of it now, I think, this assimilation or integration, whatever you want to call it.
0: Well, what it suggests, and, and, and perhaps, you know, perhaps Othello is an interesting example, and I don't know how you, how you thought about him when you were, when you were playing him, but... Uh, there is a level of acceptance that um, he has clearly been able to achieve.
1: But Which is commensurate to his skill as a leader. Precisely. Yeah. But he's a brilliant the, minute leader. the he's a brilliant general, yeah. yeah.
0: But what people say about him, firstly behind his back, but latterly to his face, is pretty raw prejudice, isn't it? Yeah. Despite what they need from him. So. Does that chime with the experience that you th- do you think of
1: I understood a um, fellow very much when I took it on, and um, I was surprised by how much things chimed with me. This is a guy who is incredibly beautifully poetic, who speaks incredibly well, who is an inspirational leader, who is a by all accounts excellent general, who has fought in the tented field and Worked for this particular government. He's respected, but as somebody in, in the private sphere, it's, it was that thing of, but I wouldn't want him to marry my daughter. Exactly. And Precisely it was extraordinary. That. I, I mean, I, I do recognize that. And so, as I was engaging with the text, I kept thinking, this is a guy who's done everything he can. And, and isn't that something? There he is at the top of his tree, and still it's this thing of, he elopes with the guy's daughter because. There's also some dodgyness there, because how young is she? Yeah, let's
0: not go there. Yikes, let's not go there.
1: (laughs) But anyway, it's that thing of also this age, he feels like he's too old. And um, there's also an amount of self-loathing and living in a society where people have rubbed my head for luck and rubbed my skin to see if it Mm. will come off. Um, And there's a wonderful uh, memoir by Paul Barber where he talks about scrubbing his face, he's so tired of prejudice in the orphanage where he was, that where he scrubbed his face to see if his um, pigmentation would come off. There is that kind of self-loathing, which is subliminal, but still there all the same. And I think Othello has some of that. Um, And growing up, I recognised that too, so the playing of it came to me, there was a facility there that I didn't realise, it just came out of me. And I I really felt for him, a man in a society, that respects him for what he can do, but doesn't respect him for what he actually is. Yeah. And I yeah. think people people do recognise that.
0: Do, do, does that... Do, I mean, I'm thinking, George, about your career and you being a very, very familiar face well, on I, television for a long time, but still an unusual one. Well,
2: I just want to pick up a l- yeah. little bit more about what Lenny was saying about Othello, because I think Shakespeare speaks to one of the most the nastiest thing about racists, the, the thing that hurts them most, and I've had this, is you've come and taken my woman, our women. You know, there's this sexual, there's a psychological thing yeah. going on there. They can take almost anything, and okay, this bastard's come and become an incredibly good general, and would just about to live with that, but oh my God, he's taken a woman, you know. And the only time, I mean, this is not actually not in this country, but um, as a young married couple, my wife Frances and I lived in, in Zimbabwe, just after um, 1980. And, and what the, the people who, in their minds, were still Rhodesians and not Zimbabweans, the men couldn't take was that. And mm. I remember being at a cricket match where people started throwing things at me. And it was, and what the, 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 the jeering was from the men, the white men who just couldn't handle that a, that a black guy, Asian guy was with, was with a white woman. And I, I don't know, am I reading too much into Shakespeare or do you... No, really... no,
1: no, I think, you know, I think the professional jealousy is one thing, but there's a nasty undercurrent, uh, particularly with the Iago. Uh, you know, I think he's done some service in Between My Sheets, where there's a, the thing of jealousy of, he's had my mm. wife too. No. So he's taken this young girl and he's had my wife as well. He puts it about it a bit. And it's a trope, you know. The Moor is a, a medieval, dramatic trope in the same way that the, the Jew and the the cuckolded husband, it's, it's part of, these are kind of iconic, stereotypic characters. And what Shakespeare was doing was flipping it. I'm gonna flip the idea of the credulous moor. I'm gonna flip the idea of animalistic sexual urges. And when he walks on stage, the, the, the Elizabethan audience are gonna go, oh my God, he's not like the usual moor we have. He's right. this very poetic, beautiful, mind my speech, he says. And then he goes on to give one of the most beautiful speeches in, in Shakespeare, you know. Um, he's nothing like you expect him to be if you're that audience and then later on when he, when, he, when, he, when he flips it again and he becomes this frothing at the mouth jealous eye-popping kind of beast the audience would have gone oh yeah that's what they're like so Shakespeare's having his cake and eating it and then he comes back to what he was so yeah. he says archetype stereotype archetype and uh, and the audience go, oh my god! But what is he? What kind of oh, He's killed everybody! Oh my god! He's still the regal noble. Oh, he's dead now.
0: Yeah, that's so how that. it goes.
1: So we put so and so when when we when we deal with these migrants, we we have our expectations. And I suppose when you went to school, and they saw you, they might have had expectations about what they thought you might be like. And then yeah. you had to quickly appraise them of what you were actually like.
2: Yeah, and and and. Well, talking about school, you mentioned it, Jenny, beforehand uh, in the the beginning of of the Comedy of Errors. It starts with a man whose life is under threat. The father of of these two sets of of the twins, of the the Antiphilus twins, Twins, yeah, um, has got to save his life um, by by finding a thousand ducats or something. And and it struck me as interesting that, so his life, at the start of this play, there is this threat. And as a migrant, I certainly felt, even as a boy of 11, that there was a sort of vague threat hanging over me. Obviously not, you know, a threat to my livelihood or anything, but that I represented more than just this little boy George. That if I stuck my hand up in class, I had better be right, because if I was wrong, then all darkies in my head. This is, uh, t- t- you know, what was going on in my head that they'd think we were all stupid and thick, and you know, laugh at me. And consequently, I never put my hand up,
1: <laughs> you know,
2: because I was so frightened that you know the fear of being wrong was greater than the kudos of being right in my mind. It took me a long time into. I'm mean, literally talking about my thirties and forties. Before I became the person who said, I mean, when I applied in you know in print journalism, but when I applied in broadcasting, and didn't, never applied for a job in front of the camera because I just thought it was too exposed. Um,
1: you know, and it is. It's very visible, isn't it? Yeah, it's like you put your head above the parapet, and there but you are. It, oh, let's see how good this guy is.
2: But luckily now, you know, if I make a foul it up, there's another guy there who's doing brilliantly. So <laughs> we're not we're not going to be judged that way. You know, we we moved on. But but you know, forty years ago, whenever it was, I, I came here. That was very much in my in my head.
1: But I think Othello has that that thing of, you know. What I say goes. Uh, he really knows his stuff. They really trust him. And yet, and yet, and yet, yeah. in his soliloquies, he has doubts. Am right. I too black? Am I too old? Does she love another? Uh, is this really the truth? He has all his self-doubts, and I recognize that. You know, when I was growing up, um, my, my birth father was not the same as the person that raised me. So my mom had had a, an, a, a brief thing with this guy, and I was the result of it, and I grew up with that on me too. And I think that's something else. It's it's in 12 Years a Slave too. This idea of migrants just kind of clinging to each other like life rafts and then springing apart and then carrying on Mm. with their lives. So I was a result of that. And so I grew up with that on me as well as everything else. And so there's a real sense with migrants of either, do you know what, I'm going to be consumed by my past, I'm going to be consumed by the circumstances of my birth or I'm going to transcend them Mm -hmm. and you can and you could transcend them by by just refusing to be constrained by what you thought was going to be a burden. You can you? you can bootless go into life and just go, I'm going to be better than what people think about me. I'm going to be better than that. Um, and it's tough to be better than that.
2: I mean, Egeon, if I got the pronunciation right, has, has a day to prove himself. But yeah. actually as an immigrant in this country, and I think it probably is true yet, you know, you, you sometimes feel you have a whole lifetime. I mean, how long do you have to be British to prove you're British? How many times do you have to pay your taxes? How many contributions do you have to make? Um, and, and and I think that's a, that's a real issue, you know, that, that if you're ha- here by birthright, you know, you're white and you're born here, you feel kind of every, you, you, everything is owed to you. Whereas, you know, my parents, when, when um, they, were, they went through a difficult patch when my fa- father was a student here. Um, it never occurred to them that they would go to the benefit system or anything, though they might have thought about it because, you know, they were still proving themselves. You know, no, we have to prove ourselves. We have to show how we can still make a contribution. Um, and so I quite liked that idea or liked, I thought it was interesting, this idea of this threat right at the beginning mm. of this play, which is about people coming to another land and so on. And here is this foreigner who faces that threat.
1: But well, I think yeah. that thing of the pursuit of, the, he's, he's looking for, when he comes, I, I mean, I relate to this too. there's lots of crying. In the, rehearsals are very indulgent, it is kind of like therapy, <laughs> my parents, um, everything is about fighting some kind of thing that you relate to, you know. So this idea of he, arriving in a foreign country um, to find your mother uh, and a brother is incredibly resonant. And, you know, imagine people being, I saw this film, D-Pan, have you seen this film? People coming with a, a put together fake family in order to make the journey. You know, and then they come and they become this, and, the, and their dysfunctional constructed family actually becomes stronger than if they were related by blood. And, and you know, when you're growing up in, in that situation, you are searching. And you, there is a sense of re- reconciling your, yourself with the fact that this is the family I've got and I'm gonna make the best of it. And so when I wrote Danny in the Human Zoo, it was about a 16 year old boy um, learning about his parentage but actually deciding that he was just gonna get on with his life and try and transcend his mistakes and move on, you know? Moving on and becoming something in society where you can hold your head up is an important thing and I think for a lot of migrants, for Shylock, for Othello, for... Antiphilus, these things are about a, a form of assimilation. I want to hold my head up and be proud and do something where I can be seen to be good at something. And it's tough. That's a tough call.
0: It is. It is. Uh, there's, there's one thing I suppose that we haven't touched on, but which is very clear in The Comedy of Errors, which is that the problem for the incomer Antiphilus is not that he is too visible, but that he is actually Invisible because he is exactly like the person for whom he is constantly being mistaken. Yeah. And um, so, what he has projected onto him by everybody around him is a lot of assumptions about who he is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, w- w- which, of course, in the play are, are, are absurd and comedic, but actually they are about the, the 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 locals going. Well, I know who you are. You look just like me. Mm-hmm. And. The thing that I was wondering about was this issue, obviously for both of you, the issue of color, as well as being different because of your um, uh, backgrounds, uh, was the thing that made you very visible and therefore easy for people to think you were different. But Mm. can you, George, for example, uh, have you any, any thoughts about what it would be like to be somebody about whom assumptions were made based on you being like what was around you rather than unlike. What well, do you mean b-
2: making assumptions as if I were like
0: yeah, so, other... Yes, so, a- so, 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 for example, there are lots of people... And the, one of the questions, one of the issues about m- migrant uh, communities in some areas is that they, they can disappear f- physically in terms of how they look because, you know, they're... Caucasian, let's say, in this country or in other countries. I mean, it's something akin to what you were saying about being in Africa, Lenny, that the assumptions were made about you. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, and that seems to me to be potentially a different kind of pressure, That hanging on to th- h- your so identity. Th- this is what Antiphilus is trying to do. He keeps saying, no, 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 I'm not who you think I am. I'm somebody else. Yeah. So w- and nobody wants to hear that.
2: I think what's going on in my life is... This curious thing, and it's a very British thing, I think, is that class trumps race yeah. in this country. Yeah, it does, yeah. So I don't know Can where... Can you hear
0: that sympathetic hum <laughs> in the so, audience? So, so, I don't know where this accent <laughs> yeah.
2: came from, because I went to school in Portsmouth. It was, it was like a grammar school, so, you know, it was a selective school, but it, but people didn't talk like this. I don't know where I got it. Maybe there's all the migrants have this kind of antenna to pick up the accent, the thing, the tie, the clothes that will make them sort of get on best. It's
0: neutralizing. Anyway, I
2: had it. And and so in in a way, my challenge has always been to remind people that I do have a history, that I do have a father who spoke, or did have a father who spoke Tamil, um, that I have, in a sense, another home, another Mm. place, Mm. where when I get off the plane, there are people who will greet me uh, with love and affection, and treat me as if as, as if I am back home, and that's been the thing. And and so for me, it's been uh, the, the thing is to sort of balance class with, with with race. So for example, I mean, for ages, I mean, till ninety three, I had a. This is after I was working for the BBC. I had a Sri Lankan passport, and you know, we'd get back to London from wherever we were, and my crew would go off, you know, on the, in the British queue, and I'd turn up with the Algerians and the Bangladeshis and and, and so on. And I'd see some poor sod ahead of me, you know, he'd sweating, he's nervous as hell, and he'd get there, he'd pull out all these bits of papers and a and then they'd take him off some little room, and God knows what happens to them, you know, questioning it. <laughs> and, and I would get there, I would get to the thing, they'd look at the Sri Lankan passport, they'd just, you could see, they're thinking, haha, Tamil. And then I'd say, hello,
0: <laughs>
2: straight through. I mean, the guy wasn't sure, really? do, I, do I treat him as, as, as what he looks like, which is, which is a. Uh, you know a, a darkie another mm. or do I listen to his accent and every time accent kicked in because for him I was obviously you know I, I, I was middle class or whatever you want to call it but class you're right
1: did your parents talk like that no my parents
2: you know no no absolutely they, they were Asian you know and actually I've got four sisters and we've all found this accent and none I mean do you listen to the World Service
0: <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean? He is the World Service. You know, um, but it's very. <laughs> Did interesting. you find yourself
1: prefacing things with "This is the BBC"? <laughs> yeah. um, but um, it,
2: I, I, I'm very interested actually because I'm, I'm meeting a couple of my school friends next week, and they just don't talk like this. And, and I, I'd, I'd be interested to know what it is in a migrant. He's sexy though, George. You've got it You know,
1: <laughs> if you've got it, flaunt uh, it, it. But there's it, a weird it, disconnect with that generation, you know, if your hmm. parents are. My parents were working class and uh, they spoke with Jamaican accent, semi-Jamaican bits of black country slipping into their accent but very, very working class. And then us kids who were aspirant and wanted to assimilate didn't all end up talking like George but we did have a kind of lingua franca where we could speak black country but we could also adopt this weird Mockney thing. When you arrive, when you come to London you, you don't speak with your accent accent you speak in this weird middle thing and that's a kind of way of negotiating and I think very quickly migrants go okay I I love going to Glasgow for instance where you go in an Indian restaurant and the the waiters come all right pal what do you want (laughs) all right pal what do you want you know have the balti you know and you know you just think this is what would that be like you know and you know we we are we are very, very good at assimilating. We are very good at fitting into a community, um, but we are very, very visible so you know you, you they think you're going to be one thing, and then the flip is that we can we talk just like you and uh, I think that freaks some people out or it used to not so much anymore well mm.
0: I think what we have discovered is that things that were preoccupying Shakespeare were preoccupying uh, um, him in his writing, are still preoccupying us now, and we don't really see any much likelihood that they're gonna go away anytime soon. Some of the issues about migration, about assimilation, about otherness, are going to be uh, part of what we wrestle with as, as societies, and indeed as artists. Probably well beyond the time when any of us will be around to talk about it. However, thank you very much for being here to listen to these people talking about it, and um, please do not forget that this evening, there is another of these platforms, which is with Claire Higgins and Julie Myerson, the novelist, and um, that's on Shakespeare and Family. But in the meantime, can I ask you to thank Lenny Henry and George Alagaya <laughs> for their very lively